Welcome to What Matters. What Matters? <laughs> Good question. Who do we have here today? Who do we have here today? An OG, you know? OG what? Old, you mean? No, original. Ah, huh? uh, okay. Right? Okay. Original gangster. Something we, like that. You have to say your name. Kenny Schachter. All right. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're right here in your house. My house, studio, office, gallery, huh? cave. <laughs> it's an amazing place, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. We have, we're here staring at one of your works. Is it a new work? Yes. What is it? It is a dinosaur skeleton of a certain raptor skeleton that's 75 million years old. But the head, the skeleton is actually fabricated in fiberglass. It's sitting outside the window and the head is a 3D uh, print. So it's... How big is it? Like it's about feet? Seven feet long, five, six feet high. And, and the head... Of the mm-hmm. same material? No, the head is 3D printed uh, plastic. It's a layered plastic, the way it 3D prints. So it's a kind of fusion of something that's ancient with something that's of the most contemporary means of fabrication. Do you consider... Sorry. Go ahead. Do you consider this um, ready-made? What's, there's nothing ready-made about it. No, didn't you say that... It's half of it is a had it made. Yeah. Which is something that I devised <laughs> back in the 90s when people, so many people were sort of disabusing Marcel Duchamp, his ready-made, by simply having their whole body of work fabricated. I mean, oftentimes I employ various means of fabrication for the work that I can't do myself. Or in case of the head, that's a, I, that's a head I designed on, on a computer and then it was 3D printed. So it's juxtaposition of one of the most ancient relics of the past, a fossilized skeleton of a dinosaur, coupled and fused together with this most contemporary iteration. It's a self-portrait in a distorted, kind of fucked up way. But it also plays on various excessive consumption mentality of people buying these skeletons as like baubles for rich people to put in their yeah, houses yeah. for tens of millions of dollars. And that's at the direct expense of museums and academic institutions having access to these things. Yeah, the most famous ones are those, um, I don't know if they're prizes or trophies or what, the T-Rex. Yeah, so it, one skeleton went for $35 million. And in a way, it's kind of disgusting that, I mean, these things belong in museums of natural history and academic museums for studying of life forms over the course of time. So in a way, it's a distorted self-portrait, but it's also a comment on very, it operates on different levels. I mean, it's this sort of hybrid monster of patching together both old and new, but also has some other commentary. And a lot of my, I mean, I don't really differentiate between the art that I make, the writing I do, and the teaching that I'm always engaged in. Yeah. They all sort of function on this sort of level of critique and commentary on various aspects of social, political, economic, and technological times we live in. Did you... Pretentious as that sounds. No, it sounds sounds kind of like the same. You can be talking about anything in art. Or you can talk about from relics of the past of like a Greek helmet or a T-Rex a T-Rex skeleton, something that both of them have been found by me in the past year in contemporary art. Did you see those Francesco Clemente's like giant paintings of like this helmet? Oh, right. Yeah. So like, I feel it in a way is kind of that just looking to the past and being like, I'm going to bring it back and put it in the forward. And one question I have for you, why did you choose fiberglass? Well, I mean, it was a matter of, I had an, I had a vision or an inspiration of making this monsterish reflection of both myself. <laughs> you consider yourself a monster? I mean, we're all monsters. Yeah, we're, we're all kind of vulgar, disgusting we're both creatures. Demons and, and angels at the same time. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I, it was just a matter of when I conceive an idea, then the next step is how best to effectuate it and bring it to life in a material form. So whether I work in photography, computer-manipulated photographs, objects, videos a lot of the time, short narrative videos. So for me, art is, like I said, it's not just, I mean, a photo representational painting holds no allure for me. Of course, technique is important, but for me, 
where, I mean, I studied philosophy. I never took an art class in my life until I was teaching one. So we have that in common. Okay. Well, I don't teach, but I also studied philosophy. I and so I guess, I mean, basically the only thing that I could do <laughs> unaided is write and yeah. conceptualize thoughts, ideations. Yeah. So for me, all art begins with either some kind of a visual, like a visual, a, a visual, a vision. Yeah. And then the next step, inevitably, it gets reduced to sentences, to writing. So then, in a way, it, my imagination is reduced to words rather than depicting images with a brush or a camera. Yeah, why not painting for you? Because the whole, I mean, the thing I like to do with my time most is to read. And that's how I glean information. That's how I learn. And that's how I uh, filter the world around me. So learning how to paint, I mean... Damien Hirst made a comment that anyone could learn to paint like Rembrandt. He's trying to paint now, <laughs> and Rembrandt wasn't a genius, and I think that's asinine. Were you saying Rembrandt wasn't a genius? That's a comment by this other artist that I just mentioned. <laughs> oh, he also. Anyway, what I'm saying is that, yeah, yeah I mean... not painting for you? Because I, I just, I mean... To Maybe me, late? It's... Hmm? Like, is it over for you? Well, I mean, I'm not... I, I don't really... There's nothing about the visceral experience of the the material itself the paint the smell yeah. the tactility applying it to a canvas and then replicating a thought or an idea or whatever yeah again i'd rather just conceive something think it through and then get it made Why? because for me that artistry comes in the thought and the conception of of something so anyway i thought that's of this very pop that's very pop premeditation of it's, making a work is pop 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 art I know. <laughs> I'm familiar with the concept. <laughs> right, I just pop. don't really think pop art is more to do with um, commentary on consumer society we live in. And no, as, as opposed to an abstract expression, for example, they don't premeditate what they're going to do. I mean, to a point, yes. Yeah, that's pop, true. That's a good point. I mean, there are many painters that paint. Some painters make preparatory sketches. Yeah, yeah. Sketches. That's my Long Island accent bleeds through <laughs> when inevitably, invariably. But... Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of painters premeditate and and, yeah. and 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 lay out a composition prior to painting it. Other painters paint as they go along, and the painting itself takes form and shape during the course of the process. Yeah. That's process-oriented painting. There's many forms of different art making from process art and uh, various forms of representation or abstraction. But for me, it's more like the illustration of philosophical thoughts. Not that mm. my thoughts are terribly philosophical, generally they, they speaking. They are, they are. You're really an oracle of wisdom oracle and knowledge crap. in the art world, yeah. I don't know about that, but thank and, you. Um, that's anyway, why, so, that's yeah. why I brought you the flowers, to show you some appreciation for inspiring me. And I know a lot of people listening to are inspired by you, so thank you so well, much. Well, that means me. a lot because, you know, you're, ask, you're coming here as an artist talking about I've done a lot of different things over the course of my life. And only yeah. recently in the last chapter, basically, of my life, have I tried to apply myself more full time as an artist in relationship to my other pursuits. We can curating, see it. We can see it. Curating. I've curate, curated and dealt art from the shows yeah. that I curated. And ultimately, that's my fallback on how to make a living. But is, that's generosity to coincide of you, look for things and bring it back and be like, boom, the dinosaur, <laughs> you know, like, what? And I guess my question coming back to that is why not um, bronze? Well, first of all, it's a matter of sheer cost. Mm. I employ different means to get things done that are, it's a matter of economic necessity. Yeah. I mean, I've done very well over the course of my life and I've yeah. also done very poorly over the yeah. course of them. And I've never been one, I'm probably the only person that ever got into NFTs in the digital art <laughs> space for money. We'll Nothing talk about NFTs do. in a minute. What I'm saying is that, I mean, I had the dinosaur skeleton, sands minus the head, fabricated in China very uh, inexpensively. Relatively I did hear speaking. that. That's why I probably said the ready-made. Do you consider that or no? Sorry? Do you consider that being ready-made that you... No, because I, like I, Coons, I helped to design... Well, Coons is not ready-made. Other than, I mean, he... No, I'm saying that the op Coons is the opposite. Like a lot of people make it, but they're considered ready-made. 
Now, ready-made is something that is made by a factory. Yeah, well, a ready-made is something that already exists that you recontextualize. What I termed back in the 90s when I made this little sculpture of Duchamp, which I had made, I commissioned it, and I called it a had it made. (laughs) So, I mean, I made an art piece with Duchamp back in the Mm. mid-90s where there was a famous advertising campaign by Nike with the basketball player Charles Barkley. And in it, he stated, I'm not a role model. And that was sacrilegious because sports figures are paid enormous sums of money to shill for for companies like Nike and Adidas and sportswear companies based on the fact that they're role models to children and to kids and to people all over the world. And then this advertising campaign was very confrontational and controversial because in it, this legendary athlete made the assertion, he asserted that he's not a role model. And then I, I manipulated this famous image of Duchamp holding one of his books, and I changed the title to I'm not a role model because so many yeah. people exploited in a strategic uh, corner cutting fashion this idea of just taking a pre existing object and a found object, a ready made object, and incorporate and calling it art. So, what I, I think that morphed into with people like Jeff Koons and Damien Hurst and various other artists, I had it made, or even Murakami, who relies so heavily on the studio practice, where rather than using something that exists, you simply pay to have it made. So in the case of the dinosaur, I couldn't, I, I designed not, I mean, it's, it's, it replicates this existing dinosaur skeleton, but I had the configuration according to my specification, um, the size of the body That's I manipulated, amazing. the stance of the body, but then I ordered it without a head and the head is completely made from scratch on a computer and then 3D printed with the most recent available 3D printing technology. So in a way, it's like fusing together these wildly disparate uh, forms that span, like I said, 75 million years. So it exists as a thing in itself, as well as commenting on various other aspects that we've already discussed. So I, would, I don't consider what I... I mean, I don't use found objects and I don't use pre-existing yeah. things I either have, like I said, ideas for art created yeah. from scratch or make them on a computer. You, I can see it now. now it's, I just wanted to know where it came from, and I, I think you really answered <laughs> came it. came from hell. Speaking of uh, Hearst and Coons, have you heard of the latest news about the cage fight between Elon and Suck? Yes. Apparently it's going to happen. It was not the BBC yesterday. Well, I mean... I don't know. <laughs> I made an art piece of of art market figures cage fighting. That was the question that I was going to do. Who do you think would be the biggest art? I mean, I made I made a work like that back, I don't yeah. know, five, seven years ago. Of I think it was Amy Capalazzo <laughs> in the ring with, uh, what's his, uh, another, it was a basically Christie's versus Sotheby's. Amy in a would win, no? Somehow, I don't know. Louis Guzer, who's this oh. wildly <laughs> testosterone-fueled uh, machismo. But what about artists? Fish spirit. What about artists? I mean, look, art is, a, art is not just a sport. It's basically a competitive contact sport. But two artists that yeah, you I would understand love to see in a cage fight. What, who, who? I don't really care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Coons and Hurst. Coons, that would be amazing. No, Imagine. it's not so. And who I'm would not, win? Who would win? I'm not interested in that. In, I mean, the art market plays itself out in the in the financial sense. Yeah, in the yeah. Auction it would house. be too much of a again like. I'm not a fighter. The only time I'm battling is when I'm hiding behind my keyboard when I'm writing articles. Otherwise, I'm a terribly anti-violence. <laughs> and I was gonna now show you appreciation for that because, in my view, I came from medicine and philosophy towards art, and then when I became an artist, I started studying artists and I realized that artists throughout the history they just have been the ones who've been ruffling the feathers of society and I feel right now we're artists are so afraid of doing that but that's our job us artists we're supposed to just be like oh we don't want that and then people are like oh he's a maniac whatever it's like that's who we're supposed to be I feel like when I hear people talking about you or something like that and like you said whatever yes I'm like yes let's do it like (laughs) <laughs> Everything needs to be more 
us ruffling the feathers of people instead of trying to appease, you know? Well, like, the problem is that on, on the one hand, I mean, I agree 1,000%. Somebody just recently looked at that, dino, back to this dumb dinosaur thing that we're discussing <laughs> at length. Someone just said to me, that's such a strong looking thing, disturbing almost. And I said, well, that's the role. Art should be, like you say, art should be critical. Art, art is a reflection and a reaction about and against various aspects of society and not meant to just be decorative or although, I mean, again, art is different things to different people. So I'm not one. It's yeah. like I said, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, abstract art has a role, despite what David Hockney has recently said, that there's no reason for abstract <laughs> art. I just think he speaking, also said horrible things about women. So Hockney, no, I don't know. Oh, no, Basil, no, George Basilitz said women can't paint and that's why they don't attain high yeah, prices. Yeah. But I guess his market is strong enough that he somehow avoided a tremendous backlash for such stupidity. He backtracked and then did, he, he did worse, kind of. Well, I mean, there's plenty of women at this stage that have, yeah. that, have, that far exceed his, his auction results. So. I, I am an abstract painter as we speak, so I'm happy that Hockney feels like that. I haven't, I haven't even thought about that, but I feel if he is saying that, that's good because he's on his way out. If he thought it was cool, I would be like, we're probably not doing the right thing. If what? If, if Hockney thought that abstract painting was cool, oh, right. I would be in trouble because well, I think he's David Hockney is, a, is an extraordinary artist. Yeah, and he's an extraordinary artist, however. His early work in the 60s was really profound in the sense of uh, some of the content that yeah. he, subject matter he dealt with was taboo. It was illegal homosexuality yeah, yeah. in the UK until I think the 50s or so, or maybe even later. I so his think... work was was right smack in the face of risk taking and, yeah. and going against the grain of and the law in society. And I think that's amazing. But using I, acrylic, I thought he really did use acrylic like oil kind of thing. And he really changed that. Again, I'm not acrylic <laughs> oil is like tomato tomato. It yeah. doesn't make much difference. But, um, but at the same see- time Hockney said that crypto and NFTs are for criminals. Yeah. So I just think at a certain point he's been so incredibly wildly open-minded during the course of his creative life and i think maybe that he's pushing 90 he's kind of hit the wall although he has this gigantic like experiential digital artwork art installation now that's Mm -hmm. drawing millions of people literally into this kind of which is again better suited to this nft and digital space that he dismisses so readily which, yeah, he's going straight towards that without even knowing. So I think the thing, art is freedom to pursue whatever interests you. And some people are more interested in, in aesthetics and beauty, while other people make art that's more hard-charging or conceptual. So the problem is when you make critical art or art that's more, that's, I mean, you're basically making your life, you're, you're, you're making your life more difficult in an economic sense because people don't want to buy art that's difficult that's problematic, that's not terribly attractive to look at, that's more ideationally based. You're, you're, I mean, some of my, the artists that I, I hold most dearly in my experience or the things that I like the most are artists that have had the most problems in their lifetime making ends meet or making a living, like Vito Akanchi, conceptual poet, video artist, performance artist, sculptor, designer, architect, more hyphenated than I am, he ended up with no money when he died, literally not $5. Paul Tech, another artist whose work that I have written and spoken about endlessly. I love Paul Tech. He died working in a supermarket in the East Village after he had toured, been in various biennials and exhibitions all over the world. But after having been absent from the U.S. for so long, in a time of no easier means of communication like social media, he paid a steep price for being absent the art market for such a period of time. Have you read um, Robert Smithson? Like his, his writings? Just bits and pieces. I read this um, essay very recently. It's called Entropy and the New Monuments. And he is from 1966. And he talks about Paul Tech a lot. Interesting. And he, he calls him... Um, a chrome and plastic fabricator, but he makes like a huge deal out of him. And the, on the book, there's this picture of one of his pieces called Hippopotamus. 
Yes, that's that is, in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art. That is so like a chunk hippopotamus of, poison. And then he has like little straws coming out of it. Well, the hippopotamus piece was a chunk of fake meat, and then it had a text incised There's into two, the glass. This is the second one. I see. Hippopotamus two or something like okay. that. And it's like a piece of meat, yeah. and then it has uh, kind of like str- metal straws coming out of it, but they bend. Yeah. And he talked a lot about that, and he called it a new monument, and they talk a lot about entropy. But I used a lot of my work in my work. Even I have a new series of paintings called Entropy Paintings that are about many, many things. But I do have feel, you say that I have paid the price of people that come to my student. It's like, oh, where's the people kind of thing? You know, it's like, well, I'm with this guy, Robert Smithson. I'm with Paul Tech, but it's hard. Yeah, like you said. I mean, bringing up Paul Tech, these sculptures you referred to, he only made 34 of them. Yeah. It's funny because you, you, Smithson, uh, characterize them as being fabricated. The fact is that Paul Tech was commenting upon uh, on the rigidity and the sterile clinical quality of minimal art, like a Donald Judd, for instance. Yeah. And in one case, he borrowed or borrowed. He asked Warhol for a Brillo box and filled it with this slab of meat. And in a way, the meat is it's very off-putting to people to see this chunk of flesh that you could just as easily see hanging from a hook in a butcher to see it in a vitrine as part of a sculpture. And it's not, I mean, in fact, the casing was fabricated, but the meat itself is painstakingly hand rendered with wax, pigment, plastic objects from canal plastics. I'm not sure it still exists anymore, but that was a mecca. I think it does. A mecca of art supplies. But anyway, so it's it's this juxtaposition of disparate things. Like you talk about the dinosaur being ready-made. It's a mixture of things that were fabricated and things that were handmade, albeit on a computer. And with Paul Tech, again, it deals with all of these issues. He's talking about issues of conceptual art. It's, it's critique of various modes of art making, like the coldness and lack of humanity in a steel box. At the same time, in this in this cold box, he includes a piece of flesh, exposed, raw. And it talks about the fragility and the vulnerability of life that a lot of people take for granted. And ultimately, Tech prematurely died of AIDS, which is right along the same lines of this kind of how we're all exposed. How old was he? He was 53. Damn. And the fact is that to a lot of people that was repulsive. And yeah. to someone like me, it's one of the most beautiful, seductive things I've ever laid my eyes on. And that, and again, like part of the too. reason Tech suffered was that he stopped making those meat sculptures because somebody referred to him at a party as the meat man and he just <laughs> didn't want to be pigeonholed. But then he flitted from one art form to another. He painted on newspaper for the very fact that it was free, accessible, and cheap. And it's a comment upon art, art like the, the, this kind of sanctity of canvas and bronze. And then he uses one of the most throwaway, non-archival, fleeting materials known to man and woman, newsprint. And he did installations that were all over the place, sprawling installations that ended up to be discarded. And all of these different art forms that never towed the line of being, you know, easily categorizable and easy to swallow by the marketplace. So he paid a price, but he always challenged himself with his never-ending curiosity to just make art all the time in whatever way he felt necessary. I love those sculptures so much. I saw recently like a hand too at a one to five Newbury in Tribeca. Yes. A few. Right. Well, that gallery is run by uh, Arne Glimpsher, Glimpsher, who founded Pace in the 60s and he showed Paul Tech in 1964 and then I curated a show there of Paul Tech in the UK at Pace in 2013. Yeah, thank you for keeping him alive because I read 50 years in, later. Sorry, what? Oh, that was 50 years later I, I exhibited Tech yeah. at Pace. But yeah, I heard it when you talked about it. I think you were in a podcast or something and you were... Because I heard you referring to some personal experience of yours with those works... And then I have the same experience in a way, too. You, If you want to talk about it or we don't have to, but when I was 10 years old, my mom had cancer. And she sat us down to me and my sister, and she was pregnant at the time that she was diagnosed with cancer. And they were like, she has six months to live. Like, say your goodbyes, Ken. 
And we were like, what? And we were living in Mexico at that time, Northwest. And we were like, well, what do we do? Whatever. And they were like, well, we're going to take her to California to get a second opinion. And in California, they told her like, oh, no, we can do it. We're going to try this experimental radiation, whatever. And she survived. Like two Amazing. years, three years later. Like now she's alive and everything. Incredible. But I heard that you said that your mom had But like cancer. saying when you're 10 years old and having something like that said to you is, it's unrecoverable. Yeah. That's such... I had something like that happen when I was 13 and my mother died before I was 14. And she what had, year was that? I was 13 years old. That was, she died in mid seventies. I'm sorry, man. I, I was thinking just because like if she was in the nineties, she would have been probably fine. probably, I mean, from you what know? I understand later, 20 years later, later in life, I found out that it was possibly melanoma skin cancer that spread to her brain and the way she, well, I mean, again, It's why it's so important that people regularly get checkups yeah. because so much is preventative. Yeah. So in the out. end, but she was, she smoked incessantly yeah. and took all diet pills and various other things that she shouldn't have. And then, I mean, it reared its head when she fainted, when she was out in public. And that's how this, this was first discovered was when it was too What late. What was her name? Pardon? What was her name? Adrian. Adrian, which is the name of my oldest kid, Adrian, your son is amazing. He's doing great. <laughs> no, he's you suffering. Are. We love you. You're very sweet. Anyway, but like in a way that's couched all of my subsequent experiences yeah. in my life and my Me art too, and like how I said. think you can't, it's something that's indelible in your head. And it, as a child, so vulnerable, these are some of the experiences that color the rest of your life. That's why I wanted to pursue medicine in the first place. Before art. I loved art when I was a kid. I loved Picasso and Warhol and everybody. But I was like, no, after this, this doctor saved my mom's life. I have to save people's life. And then I got there. I got to Houston, Texas. Um, and I was so stressed and not feeling well, kind of. And then I moved to New York City for grad school, study philosophy. And that's when I fell in love with art. I saw the Mauricio Catalan show at the Guggenheim. You see it? Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. You would think that's this? enough to make you run from art. <laughs> well, you may say whatever, but as a, I don't know, 20-year-old in New York studying philosophy, I was like, this is a good game. That For I me, it was to. Vito Acconci masturbating under the floor, which I didn't see at the time. It was from an installation at Sonnabend Gallery in 1972. But f How old were you? I was a kid. I was, a, I was, a, I was under 10. But the fact was, I didn't... I found out much later oh, after okay, the fact. Okay, okay. But I when I did find out, I thought if that could be art, that means anything is art. Something so puerile, something so, well, something that everybody engages in, but nobody likes to talk about as yeah, such. Yeah. So I thought, well, if that could be art. Puritanism. What is it? Puritanism? Yeah. American Puritanism? Yes. But not just American. Yeah, I guess. But I thought, well, if, if that's art, then perhaps I found my calling in something. Well, I, I heard you say that you were 26 when you went into the first gallery or something like that. I never, I mean, like, you hear about kids that took things apart and put them back together. Well, I took them apart and then got bored and left them broken. <laughs> I never went, I was never taken to a museum or a gallery or went on my own until I was in university. Did I even go to the first museums I went to? So I'm like, I call myself idiot, idiot savant. I was very much a late bloomer. And I found out, I went to museums, the East Wing of the National Gallery in Washington. Oh, that's my favorite museum in the world. It's a great museum. And that's where I encountered Twombly and Warhol and various, Rauschenberg. And With Raphael, just like chilling, you know what I mean? Like everything's there. <laughs> and then at still, I had no, at that point, I thought that art went directly from artist to museum. And that was the only road that art traveled upon. Not until... After graduate school, I went to law school just to hide from the marketplace. Did I find, I went to Warhol's estate sale where they were gearing up for the yearly spring auction. And that's when I first, for the very first time in my life, saw that I didn't think art could be owned in a domestic context. Mm. I thought art went to museums and it was an institutional thing from start to finish. I didn't, I was not even aware in the most basic sense. What year was this? 88. Ooh. So um, I really came to the art world with very fresh eyes. And rather than go to graduate school for art, not graduate, I should say, yeah. undergraduate, because I never read an art history book or attended a class in my life until that is I was teaching one on probation at the new school in 1992 just to learn 
bought Jansen's book of art history, read three chapters, drank a big beer to get my courage up and then regurgitated it in my own twisted, unconventional fashion. And I've been teaching ever since. And I teach to learn and to share information and to help and to inspire people because the yeah. art world is very exclusionary, very unwelcoming. That's what we're doing this show too, to give the mic to artists to be like, hey, what's going on with you? Well, like you randomly contacted me. I don't know you from yeah, the hole yeah. in the wall. It's Saturday afternoon. I could be reading and doing research and instead I'm wasting my time no, with you being in my house. <laughs> and you have about another 15 minutes or so. We're being generous and we're teaching. I, I believe if somebody asked me for my time and um, it's the least I could do is to try to help other people the way that I, really I generally was never helped. Yeah, I, I really think that I, I talked about this before in the podcast, but the, the reason why I started this is because I have a two-year-old son. And when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to be artistic. There was no money in art. Nobody's artistic here. Everybody's Still is no money from where I'm sitting. I mean, and then... Um, when I got here, I started meeting people making a living, just making art. And I was like, well, I always been good at making art. I want to do that. And I want my son to know that. Like, that's something that took me 26 years to learn. Even just somebody told me. And I want him to be a kid and be like, I can do that if he wants to. Or if something happens to me, so he can hear people like you that are doing it. And that's all that matters. Yeah, we're going to go ups and downs, whatever. But if you're reaching into yourself and getting ideas from yourself and bringing them to life and making it a visual thing for us, that's generosity to me. And we should all be rewarded for it no matter what. And I feel sometimes we lose control and we decide to spend money on many, many things. Like, I don't know, like something that happened. Um, do you remember Theranos? Of course. So when that was happening, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that machine, the Theranos machine, when I was in college. And I talked to everybody in robotics they're like it's impossible it's impossible it's impossible and then she was like i can do it it's like there's no way and then when i was here already being an artist many people that i knew who bought art were investing money and i was like don't do that don't do that and we're like will she has it whatever i met a lot of people that lost millions and they're like so what hmm. but they're not willing to pay ten thousand for a. have never met people that lost millions and were like so what normally the people that have the most money are the most bitter when they lose it. So but it's like a, a gamble. It's like, I was going to make a hundred. Yeah, so, sure. But when, what I, all I'm saying is like, why don't we spend the same amount of money on art than we spend on like bets on tech? Well, a lot of people do use art as a form of gambling and But not as many people. Well, art is a yeah. smaller universe than various other f sectors in the economy. Do you, yeah. Do you feel that we need more? How, yeah. How do you feel? Do you need do we need a bigger influx of money into the art world or you like it small? Well, I just, I don't, it's something that it can't be controlled. It is what it is. So, I mean, more money is always great when you're yeah. making art and, and live in the art world, but it's not something that could be engineered. It just is what it is. So people like art much more, much more don't, Yeah, unfortunately, but you can't twist people's arm and the people that like it, like it enormously varying degrees of course but it's not something that could be manipulated really so a question that we have in this podcast is why do you think there are no artists in the talk shows like with jimmy fallon's like i just said i mean art is a very niche people feel intimidated i think a lot of it has to do with the whole i mean the history of the community of the way art art communicates still museums are more visited than sports events That's so there's a tremendous audience that know about art that care about art that take the time out of their lives to go to museums and see art at the same time over the history of the of the commercial side of art art has always sort of painted itself into part in the, <laughs> the cliche but art has painted itself into the corner by <laughs> communicating in very exclusionary ways that i mean to warrant pain $3,000 for a Jackson Pollock at the time of its making, you had to emulate this kind of institutional architectural model where things are very clinical, very meant to be erudite, ununderstandable by most people. So in a way, I mean, art is probably ha today has the largest audience in history. There's been more growth in the last 25 years than the previous 250. 
unfortunately, there's been a lot of kind of dumbing down of things where a lot of it is no different from collectible sneakers on a certain level, where a lot of the conceptual import has been diluted. But I think that, I mean, it is, again, like, because galleries are all, you know, almost entirely universally closed on Sundays, they all adhere to the same hours, Tuesday to Saturday, 10 to 6, um, closed on Sundays and Mondays, and they all ape the same kind of interior design of white walls, very austere, not very hospitable to an audience. So these things to try to give the imprimatur of value and meaning and trying to make work seem, uh, you know, I mean, to go to an art fair, I think is something like $65, generally speaking, for admission. So I think they're over the course of the commercialization of art in the last hundred years, or I think the first galleries commercially, like a painting only, not painting, but galleries where they were non-framing shops and exclusively dedicated towards selling art, has only been around since the 1860s, more or less. Yeah. And in that time, I think that art is just, I mean, a lot of the art world is at fault. They're they're self-sabotaging in terms of being very, I mean, part of my writing and my teaching has to do with battling the incredible degrees of hypocrisy in the art world and this kind of mentality where you're doing it. It's a a pill battle. But anyway, I just think, Art should be accessible to everyone. And I, when I was curating these hit and run shows in the 90s, I would never put the word gallery on the wall because it would immediately alienate half the audience. I would leave the doors open, sometimes not even having doors in the dead of winter. I did one show in 26th Street back in the mid 90s, and there was a garage facade, which I kept open the whole time, and my nose screwed up against the heater. I think I had a chill for two years after that. But I think I love to... You broke the rules. Well, I mean, the thing of art should have no rules. That's why people gravitate towards the art world. It has an incredible set of unspoken rules and regulations, but that's not terribly interesting to adhere to. I would like someone to write all those unspoken rules in a book. Well, I mean, I say the art world knows one word primarily, and that's the word no. (laughs) No, you can't do this, say that, behave like this. when When I first showed up here and I started selling my work in like 2012, around then, um... I would take it really bad when they would say no, right? I would be like, hurt, hurt, hurt. And then someone told me, and they were like, when they tell you no, it's because they don't know enough. Well, again, like the art world, a success affirms success. So when people ask, how do you get a foothold into the gallery world or asking for help? Really, you're the only one that can help yourself. Yeah. And galleries are just not interested. They're interested in art that comes prepackaged with a ready audience for it. And a market. So there are very few galleries in the world that undertake dealing with unaffiliated artists that are just getting started. You really need to resort. But there have never been more tools to help artists yeah. to facilitate their own opportunities. And that's a necessary aspect of or one, starting one, a career. One rule that I saw, or I think you broke, that I also broke in myself is I curated a show and then I included myself. Well, I mean, I began curating, just between us, I began curating to create my own context to show my art. Me too. I started making art after graduate school, and and then I started organizing shows and sticking my art in it from the get-go. I always stuck it, I mean, I wouldn't put it foremost in the center of any given space. I would put it on the fringes physically, but I've reviewed my own shows. I mean, I don't believe... In the most basic sense, I don't believe there's anything called a conflict of interest. There's immorality or a lack of integrity, but as long as you're transparent, how, yeah. how could you have a conflict unless you're doing something wrong? So You're not hurting anybody. That's a, no, and I think as long as you don't hurt anything, anyone or generally break any people. laws, more or less, you're good to go. Yeah. So I put my work in my show. I was selling my own work from the beginning, writing about it more than on a semi-regular basis, which I still, in my writing for Artnet, I oftentimes pay lip service to projects I'm involved in and things I'm doing yeah. because otherwise nobody else will. Yeah. And yeah, you could be doing law. I'm not law. self-aggrandizing, I mean. But you could be doing law Well, I couldn't, I was malpractice from the start because well, I never intended to be a lawyer. I was just, I worked full-time 
from the beginning of law school, never attended classes, simply took the exams and had zero intent to practice. Although I did a little freelance writing for various law in firms. An, in another timeline, you're a lawyer. In no timeline. That <laughs> was just training. It, it was like military training from my teaching me the tenacity of st sticking to something. That's how I feel medicine. Well, it was medicine for me to get through law school. <laughs> the whole point that I was going to make is that I, I read your recent article, which is amazing, by the way. Oh, thank you so You're much. an amazing writer. Yeah, I want to say it out loud because I <laughs> do feel it that it's very invigorating when you see someone that know, has a great vocabulary and you're really good at being like, oh, I didn't think about that. So I want to show you appreciation for it's that. It's funny because like I just got back from, I went to give a bunch of lectures in Zurich and then went to Basel to get some intel to write about it. And then the second I got off the plane, I wrote an essay about the painter Matthew Wong, who died oh, a few years ago. God. And having amazing to write... Amazing painter, amazing yeah, painter. Having to write this essay for the Van Gogh Museum was very formidable to do so in a way that, you know, was respectful, both in the context of the Van Gogh Museum, or not, I mean, I mean, respectful is not the word, but to do something that can pass muster with the curators of the Van Gogh Museum and the family of Matthew and to his legacy, it was very daunting to have, that's a whole different kind of writing than writing shit about the art world. So I think it was a good exercise for me for the last piece that I wrote, because again, like I loved, I love to stretch I love to learn and I love to, yeah, to, to tackle things in ways I haven't done before. Yeah. So I just think like having to sit down and write an essay, which just took me uh, the length of one day to you write can this. can wait to read it. I'll send it to you. Of it course. comes out in the fall. And anyway, so to do that and then to write an article for Artnet about, <laughs> about the art world smack, it just came out of me with, with, yeah, without yeah. much forethought because I had just wrestled with something which is extraordinarily... Um, yeah, formidable to have to write an essay that will be in a book that will last forever for such a, an amazing institution. Yeah, the reason why I brought back the, the article is because I read about the Harvard study about the um, healing power of art and all that. And I feel in my case, when I was uh, in medicine, I felt terrible, like physically. I had like back pain, bleeding or whatever. And then as soon as I started painting, it kind of like all went away. And I, feel, I was going to ask you, did you feel that yourself before art or before you started making art? Did you feel any specific? Well, I was pretty high and drunk the whole time, so I didn't feel much <laughs> other than fog. Numb. But I mean, I'm, look, there's no easy route. I mean, some you can't compare yourself to other people. You'll always find someone who's better, skinnier, more successful, makes better stuff, whatever. It's not, it's irrelevant. But the point is that with all of the ups and downs I continued to suffer through, now I don't drink or do drugs anymore, but... I'm, stand, a, tea, I'm a tea taller myself. That's a good thing to do. The earlier you can do it, the better, because, I mean, I don't have any regrets about yeah. the chaos. I it love chaos. So much better. And I certainly wrought it upon myself. The older you get, in my case, I'm 37, I realize that nothing really happens after 10 p.m., well, other nothing than, good happens when you're drunk, basically. But other than sex and drugs, which is cool and fun, but nothing else is... Like, there's no deals. Like, nobody's, like, at Netflix being, like, deal at 3 a.m., you know what no. I mean? Like, that doesn't really happen. Or no. selling art in the middle of the night. Nothing. But back to the question. The yeah. fact is that, to this day, standing before a piece of work or, or conceiving a work, writing, these are the, the only things, besides being beside my children that bring joy to my life and solace. So if, I mean, art for me is not just a way of life, which it is, not just something I engage in every single day of my life, but it gives meaning to my life. And it, it has this deep sense of satisfaction, rejuvenation. And when I am like in a difficult mental state, which is pretty much every day, looking at artwork just it is some kind of a salve. It's some kind of an ameliorative. Uh, it has this aspect that just makes you feel better, literally and figuratively. And yeah, so I engage with things that I surround myself with literally all the time. I'm constantly looking at things in different ways, moving things around and engaging on a very physical level, 
with the art that I'm surrounded with, it makes me feel better. You curated, mm -hmm. or what, what would you call that process of going through everything and moving it around, whatever? Just shifting crap around in my, <laughs> feng, in my living space. <laughs> no, it's just, I look at things and I, I constantly rethink things and never yeah. get complacent or take things for granted. You are, you are a good thinker. That's a compliment that I want Thank you give. very much. You think really good. Maybe you could stick around for the rest of the day and keep <laughs> reminding me. <laughs> all, the, all the good things don't stop. I wanted to bring up one more thing because I read this article that I bring up sometimes and it's about how childhood ad adversity can enhance the creative experience. Well, I think, I mean, there's so many romantic notions of like, I mean, I used to think artists were drinking absinthe and hanging from the chandelier and going to orgies the whole time. And yet nothing prepared me for the degree of conservativeness that you find in the in the professional art world. So, I mean, I don't think that any there are plenty of artists that have had happy childhoods that excel and flourish as artists. I don't there's no hard and ready, fast way to define what creates a good or bad or a successful or an unsuccessful artist. Some art, some people have had tragedies one after the other and then found a way to express themselves in a meaningful way that brings light to their lives and to others. While on the other hand, some people get support. I mean, I think having to be nurtured and supported, supported by your family from a young age is an extraordinary gift. And yeah. But that's just simply not the case. So I could say that my mother died when I was 13 over, over the course of a year. When you talk about Smithson's sense of entropy and Paul Tech's depiction of the fragility of life and death and this, the hair that separates them in such a visceral way, has to see a human being decay and deteriorate, which is your mother when you're a child, is an excruciating experience to have to live through And it's very, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's awful, obviously, beyond awful. And it's something yeah. that you can never erase these images, these horrific images from your mind. And then, like, at the same time, I had another parent who was even, like, who was wildly unsupportive and mean-spirited. That's just my fate. So this, I yeah. can't undo that. I mean, I can try with various degrees of therapy, although I've yet to find anything in that way regard that helped me. So you just make do with the best way you can with whatever your lot in life is. I was, and make the I'm best on out the of same it. boat. Yeah, my dad ne never really was with us, but he was. What? Like, hi, hi, I'm in a podcast. I'll call you back. I love you. I don't know. Goodbye. <laughs> that I was gonna say that I'm on the same boat with my parents in a way my dad was a, a very absent person but also he had very big troubles himself with like alcohol and drugs and all that so he was never really around but also even further than that I was never under the impression that my creativity could become something Did you, where did you get that? If you well, the fact from was, I mean, I just, my mother was, I mean, I had, my mother was creative in terms mm. of how she, from fashion, the way she expressed herself. I remember one memory I have is her making a mural in the wall of the basement and painting this kind of wild tree directly on the wall, which was slightly unusual. And that stuck with me. But other than that, I had literally very little interaction with either of my parents or much support on any level. But the one thing I was instilled with was this, I don't know, I mean, this idea of just creating your own destiny and your own fate and mainly not capitulating. And I think if we're near ending this, which yes, good, <laughs> but I mean, if I could say one thing, the only, I mean, it's the tenacity and the perseverance of just not caving in and not compromising and just life is so short. So you figure out what satisfies you on some level or what, yeah, what interests you, what you're passionate about. I mean, my career is built on love and passion for art, which I came to very late in life, but I'm grateful that I found it. And in that sense, I will never compromise 
on any level, whether I have to struggle a little more financially because I live in such an unconventional way with the career I've patched together, so be it. I mean, I would never want to do an alternative simply to make ends meet, or I'd rather just hustle and hustle. It's yeah. a constant, that's the one constant. But the fact is that I have a vision of what I love to do, which is writing, making stuff and teaching and communicating. Art is self-expression and communication. And I was so thwarted as a child, I couldn't even speak. I stuttered. That's why I never shut up now. I never <laughs> give up the opportunity to speak to a captive audience. I just mentioned in my last article but I mean, I used to, when I was literally on the verge of catatonic due to speech impediment, being overweight and isolated, I I would just cut out images from magazines and collage them onto my wall in my bedroom. And in a sense, I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. I'm taking things that we live in a world saturated more than at any extent throughout the history of time with all yeah. of the information systems we have at hand. There's so much information, images, and information, I just sort of take, extrapolate from what exists and then reconfigure it in the same exact way I was doing as this kind of alienated kid. And I just, again, it's a stick-to-itiveness and this insatiable curiosity to learn and then to share with other people to and teach. help people that could be similarly situated. I thesis advise Anyone who send anyone who listens to this is free to contact me. It's true. He did if it. They, I mean, I heard you talk about it, and then I I, I say that you. I don't I don't lie. Basically, I mean, of course, we all do on <laughs> one level or another. But if I say I'll help you, person. I answer stuff, and yeah, I just think and, yeah. it's a simple way of being a human being in the world. And if more people were more considerate and generous to other people, we'd li we'd the world would be a much better place instead of being on the. Not only did that submarine implode. But the whole world is on the verge of implosion. It's true. The pressure's building And I up, mean, huh? if just people would just fucking yeah. lighten up a little bit and try to help each other, yeah. it would be a different story. So I have hope yeah. through art. And Me that's too. all I could do. And as the sunshine's coming through over here... Then you could leave. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to tell you that, yeah, even if you bloom a little late, you're blooming. And I love everything you're doing. And thank you so much, man. Thank like, you for your time and your considerate and considered questions one more question no come on what matters nothing matters nothing art matters. and family art and family two things i share that thanks a lot man. okay thank you very much <laughs>